You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you need batteries for your truck, batteries for your trail cameras, TV remote controls, flashlights, you name it, Interstate Batteries has what you need. They have thousands of retail locations all over the United States. So stop in, talk to a battery specialist, or for more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, so back on the road again. Another another podcast while going down the road which is going to be kind of a common theme yeah i think so uh this time of the year um consulting season is full swing oh look at all those birds up there a lot of uh a lot of, a lot of uh, deer seasons have officially closed so yep. everybody's getting getting after it trying to do whatever they can to prepare for the next deer season um and so we're Obviously, because people are preparing for the next deer season, we're on the road a lot helping clients from across the country um, prepare their farm for the for next year and in the future. Because a lot of our practices, as you'll hear or as you've heard in the past, once they're implemented, uh, <laughs> it changes things for a long time uh, or for several years at least. And it's not a once and done type thing where... Uh, wrap things up and wrap up the work and then the next year if you don't do it again it's it's vapor in the wind it's it's uh it's no longer void. felt so yeah. um there's a lot of chainsaws that are being ran this time of year uh, especially a lot of our clients after we leave laying out a lot of work uh, but we're headed up we're headed up north we're headed to the great north state country. of iowa yep. and nebraska yep um so you know, we're headed to jackets, b- big box socks. Yeah. <laughs> Never go to Iowa without your long johns. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we're headed up there, and that's what Matt's talking about, all the waterfowl getting up in here closer to Kansas City. So there's a lot of waterfowl in the air. Um, you know, uh, kind of going back, looking back uh, last week or so since our last recording. I was on the road last week. You've been on the road this week and i had another consult even after last week's recording but we've got uh i was in indiana and then you've been in three properties in oklahoma yeah uh frank and i hit kansas and then we went to oklahoma uh last couple days and um three three really different properties i mean drastically different properties even though they're in the same relative area same county um and and we'll talk on it a lot a lot more here in depth. But two miles apart, really about thirty foot, fifty foot elevation change, and you have one hundred percent different properties, different management strategies, everything. So and it, you it could see really that cool. you know when we're talking about the transition or the difference between habitat features, ecosystems, 
even within a property. Like you oh, look yeah. at the Prairie Hollow property, and you can go from bottom ground where there's some bur oaks all the way to dry, dry glades, um, to which would require totally different management. Um, but we'll get into more on the type of management and everything uh, a little bit later on in this podcast. So tell me a little bit more about your <coughs> Oklahoma, consul- uh, Oklahoma Consulting. Yeah, so was down there <laughs> one it was warm <laughs> it was like 65 that's degrees just about crazy. every day um sun was shining it was gorgeous and that's warm and and it's important to kind of talk about just general region we're south central oklahoma um which was about you know these properties on average probably at three miles four miles off the red river um so just outside of texas and just the county itself we're right there in the middle, kind of the, the cross timbers region. But, but within that, there is also, being close to the river, there's a lot of bottomland. There is um, prairie. There is that cross timbers, blackjack, post oak, really dense timbered portions. And so literally in, in the matter of most of these properties, you, you had anything from um, there, there's there's one of the areas is called a bayou and, and it's registered like a bayou and you're like Oklahoma really you don't get that outside of like Mississippi Louisiana parts of Texas but um did you all this mention in, Louisiana did you say Louisiana, Louisiana on the bayou yeah okay but it's like how do you have all of that in 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 the midst of three miles um and and as a result of it you have diversity and and you have incredible opportunities resources to be able to manage to make awesome wildlife habitat and as a result of all of that there are some absolutely incredible deer that get killed down there it's it's shocking how good it is and i I think there's a lot of factors to it um but some of it's just low stress we have almost in every step you take in 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 the right areas is food or cover and that's not that's not an exaggeration um yeah. some some of these sites were were just absolutely incredible it's one of the many reasons why we love oklahoma yeah and, and you have you have um really l- mild winters yeah and, and food everywhere probably um, the biggest stress period in that part of the world is the summers yeah uh yeah, you get into summer. severe drought and it can get really really stressful but some of these areas, though, if, if you have deer kind of getting, you know, can, can kind of get packed into these wetter areas, um, areas with some good drainages during those more stressful hot periods. But, again, every little fold in the landscape there, you have those opportunities. We'd go from there's bur oaks there. There was beautiful uh, red oaks. There were post oaks, blackjacks. Every single thing that, that we're going to be that we would manage there um in oklahoma really we're seeing uh, i would say probably 80 percent of the same exact species where we're going to be in iowa it's just it's kind of hard to imagine that you go from almost texas and then you go into to southern iowa and oh we still have american elm we still have bur oak we still have post oak um we have others other species of course but really the bulk we've got greenbrier blackberry uh, we've got uh plums we've got dog like all of these things are still there yeah and and um you know it, it's just I a low stressful environment down there in I oklahoma was kind of in you know central illinois this past week and yep. greenbrier there yep um which is just one of those deer foods that's like it's got a huge range and no matter where we go in the country it doesn't matter if there's abundant food or of course, if food is very limited, they hammer it. Yep. But if even if there's abundant food, Greenbrier still browsed. It's still browsed, absolutely. And it's just one of those indications of let deer tell you what they like. Because if you see them consistently browsing on something, there's Across there's the a reason why they like Across it. And we don't country. know what it is. Nothing about Greenbrier says this would be a great deer food. <laughs> yeah. But they hammer it and, sure and it doesn't matter where we go the yep. you'll see deer brows on it so it's like okay let's enhance that yeah for sure and like one, one of the sites um it was an upland site and uh it was truthfully like the iconic savannah it, it is it was 
distribution of large mature trees. Um, we had little blue stem. We had associated forbs underneath of all of it. We had some saplings coming back in. The, the previous owner um, grazed the property and had done basically almost yearly prescribed fire on the place. And so gotcha. it was... Um, it was incredible. Awesome. It, I mean, cover. You know, you said something there everywhere. With, with Savannah. That's a good point because you hear. We got asked this question this week about savannas. Mm-hmm. Um, you hear, you hear savannas, and then you'll even hear woodlands mixed in. Uh, when people start talking about ecosystems, especially historically, savannah gets brought up, and right. um, savannah is one of those ecosystems. Phenomenal. I mean, it's one of our favorites, but it's not one of those that you can just turn any old woodlot into a savanna just no, by cutting all. trees. Savanna ecosystems usually have a more grass-dominated understory, um, grass and forbs. Not so much woody stems, young forests, and brambles because that's usually a sign of a little bit more shade, uh, more and of a tree, more of a forest or a woodland, if you will. And so, Or an unmanaged savanna with that hasn't had fire in a couple years. Yeah, and so savannas also, being a grassland base ecosystem, require more frequent fi- f- fires. Uh, almost sounded like I said frequent flyers, like yeah. frequent flyer mi- miles. But um, we got a little distracted because there's, there's a monster flock of a couple snow thousand geese snow geese <laughs> that are glittering over us right now. Um, but yes, so savannas, wonderful ecosystem. But you just can't turn any old forest or backslope forest or even a woodland into a savanna and say, just like that, we have a savanna. Yep. Because they are a grass-dominated ecosystem. Um, if you want to learn more about savannas, I would encourage you to go over to the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative Facebook page. Follow them on, on the their website. They've got yep. so much great information about specifically southeastern grasslands but they talk a lot about savannas and different types of grasslands in the in the southeast like like let's say for instance if you go and you and you have a, a wood lot and you go and you remove 80 percent of the trees you don't just have a savanna <laughs> that's not, not a savanna that's no. just a a wood lot with a lot of herbaceous cover underneath of a it. lot of woody sprouts are going to come back yeah. and you can turn a lot of times and that's why you looking back historically and trying to understand what was there pre-settlement is a great way of going, okay, is this truly a savanna or is this truly a more of a woodland? Mm-hmm. And where's this in relation to an area that would maybe be more prairie versus an area that probably was more forest? Because uh, that can kind of help you understand the transition from true grassland to true forest. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> Savannas are awesome. Oklahoma has a bunch of them. Yeah. And, and a lot of times, another big thing you can do is look at kind of your remnant trees. So, like, yeah, down there you had monster post oaks Monsters. or monster bur oaks, which are fire, more of a fire regime type uh, tree species or a, uh, a species that's more in that fire tolerant landscape. And you wouldn't see maples, sugar maples, growing out, scattered out in a grassland. No. And go, oh, there's a there's no, a savanna. No, not at all. And, uh, and very little, very little hickory um, yeah. component into it. Um, but one one of the things that we saw there were these monster post oaks that had so frequent fire that yeah they were they were fire scarred. Um, but you look up in the canopy, and you could you you don't see any stress, and it just goes to show how intense and strong let's say mighty those trees are and resistant to fire um they've had some hellacious fires come through there and it's just like wow i would have hated to have been around here we're talking the bottom of some um of the lower limbs scarred with fire but truly beyond that the tree health is just incredible um so they're they're just resistant to fire i I saw probably one of the oldest bur oaks I had ever seen before. I kind of stuck my hand uh, into, like, let's say, where the the two cracks of between the bark and and my whole hand fit in. It was like six, seven inch deep bark, thick bark yeah. between the the actual tree itself and the outside of it. It was that thick. So when you look at bark that thick, that's armor around the tree. Um, so you know right off the bat that and there's some resistance to fire. That that tree is going to do really good 
in fi- in, in fire landscapes. Oh um, yeah, it's just a, a beautiful tree. Although Leopold talked about it in his Sand County Almanac of of bur oak having armor all the way from the base all yeah. the way up to the end of the branches, and that's one of the great ways to identify bur oaks. When even when you're driving down the road, yep. you can see. Once you train your eye, you, you can be driving along and be like, whoa, that tree over there. That's a bur oak. That one looks different. That's that. probably, oh, yep, that's a bur oak. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can tell them in, in a, especially in the wintertime, you look up through, let's say, a bottom or you look up through a creek bank and you're like, yeah, there's one on that, that bank of that, that creek system. That's for sure. When there's the structure is just so sound. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely, definitely cool. But it just... Those three days and visiting the three different landowners and the properties there in South Central Oklahoma was a constant reminder of what we're going to talk about today, which is just simply managing the landscape and the wildlife species that we talk about, specifically white-tailed deer, wild turkey, bobwhite quail a lot, just manage based on principles. Like the foundation of management for those species whether we're right up here coming into Iowa or Oklahoma, the species is still the species. Yeah. The land is different. And, and let's say the specific needs in that climate of differences of Oklahoma to Iowa, yeah, sure, those are different, but the principle is still the same. That's it. We manage off principles rather than fads or trends. Man, or it's so easy. Or products. <laughs> yeah, it's so easy to look for that silver bullet of man. What's just gonna get me here quick? What's just gonna What's just gonna make this thing simple? And um, everyone likes to see innovation and change, but innovation, you know, biology is biology. Facts are facts, and deer are deer, and they need what they need. Yes, again, the the. Uh, maybe the prevalence or the the composition of one of woody browse is going to change from Iowa to Oklahoma or herbaceous cover grasses is going to change from one to another. But the principles of management for those species still is the exact same. That's silver bullet that you're going to see in a magazine or, or hear about. Um, that's not going to change <laughs> the way you manage. Yeah. You manage on facts and science. Well, the silver bullets usually come in the form of a advertisement correct correct a, a um, marketing scheme some or something. sort of marketing backed uh product or practice yep. um that requires a certain tool is is something that you you've seen kind of get really popular here it is 2020 and it seems like it's more popular today than it was five years ago um and i think that's where it doesn't matter, you know, for instance, it doesn't matter what chainsaw you use or what tool you use or what you were wearing, what clothing you were wearing or what sports drink you were drinking when you did it. The simple fact is if your property needs woody brows and more cover, put it there. Don't follow the fads of exactly how do I need to do this? Should I hinge cut it? Should I hack and squirt it? Should I girdle it? What should I do? Well, chances are find the void on your property and fill it, and it really doesn't matter. The technique you used, that's not as crucial as long as you provide that for your wildlife. Yeah, I mean, if, if we're talking about, you know, saving some time and um, trying to trying to find the most efficient way to do it, yeah, we, we could discuss the differences in those techniques. But, again, the principle is... The fact that you need it on the landscape, yeah, or, or, or let's say you don't need it, the wildlife needs it, or the yeah. land is telling you that's what should be here. So, so do that. Like, put it there, create it, and, and that that's going to kind of be it. I mean, it's it's not that hard to to make sure it's there. It's just a matter of, of more or less doing. And I think that I know Adam, you you've heard it. And we've talked to tons and tons of people. And it's, there's nothing wrong with this, but it, it, the analysis paralysis, yeah. especially like this time of year, because it is off season. And a lot of people um, who may not do this year round are talking, looking, sharing articles, doing all this other stuff. And there's just so much, let's say, content based around, let's just overall land management or let's just say TSI, right? There's Ugh. so much content around that right now. And if you read all these different things and and you might be a novice at it 
you're going to sit back and be like, well, gosh, where do I start? And how frustrating uh, is absolutely, that? Absolutely. And I had a client ask me this this past week, like, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of content out there. Like, how do you know what's how do I know what to do? Right. Because right. everyone's telling me a different practice, and and I mean, I I would be glad to stand on a stand on a stage and submit my reasoning for why we choose to do certain sure. things, and and it always comes back to well, we do it this way because we believe this is the way nature this is the best way to replicate nature. Absolutely. This is yes. the best way that we know that's more beneficial to all wildlife, not just one species. Right. Um, and so, once again, we're always trying to replicate nature and, and use it as our model, as well as trying to work with it to where we're not beating our head against the wall going, this is not working. And, and nature works and regulates itself based on these principles. But the way nature works in Iowa and the way nature works in Oklahoma, it's a little different because guess what? There's different rainfalls. There's different uh, growing season, growing degree days. There's different frost periods. So you have to be able to understand what it is one of those states would offer and then manipulate your strategy or your technique a little bit to kind of fit or, or, it, it, there's no cookie cutter like plan that we could say, "Hey, do this." Yeah. Because cookie cutter consulting. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work because it's like the the two. I was on two properties. Literally, they were two miles apart, and they couldn't have been any more different. Yeah. And there was there was nothing that I could have like I couldn't have t- gone to the first one. And be like, okay, that other guy, he's going to do this exact same thing because the landscape yeah. was 100 percent different. It was. Almost all bottomland and probably only 20% was, was upland. And gotcha. he had non-native pastures. Um, so it's like, well, this other thing was like hundo percent native. We can't, we can't just sit here yeah. and expect there to be, well, tell me what I need to do because well, I'm th- here. And the oh. reason we say that is because you see a lot, a lot of questions come up of how many acres of food plot should I have on my farm? Right. How, what's the ratio of food plot acres to timber acres? Or what's the ratio of, of bedding, bedding area acres to food plots? What's the ratio of soybeans to clover? How many acres of clover should I have on my place? And it's just like that you, what do you, you mean? can't what do you mean answer ratio? that because every single property is different. And, and a lot of times you could go from one side of the property, if it's a a decent sized property you could go from one side of the property to the other and and be completely different going we oh, don't yeah. need we don't need clover on this end of the food plot because the you've got a an alfalfa field um, we don't need uh, the as much cover here because uh, we don't need to plant cover here because it's already naturally occurring with this prairie uh, with this native prairie right here uh, everything is so different and it's that's where I don't like the idea. Or a lot of times, it's when you get asked the question, "How many acres of food plots?" Well, there's some. There's some times where you may not even need food plots. Oh yeah. To really change Absolutely. the to change your hunting, and then there's other times where yeah, food plots are really going to change how many wildlife you're seeing on your property. But we don't know that till we get there and see the the surrounding neighborhood, your farm. And just assess what's going on on the habitat or on the landscape with the habitat. Yeah, absolutely. Because, like, let's just take let's just take thermal cover for instance. When we talk about thermal cover, what's like everyone's immediate thought is <laughs> just wintertime. Well, yeah, two two thoughts. You you think wintertime for thermal cover, and you think eastern red cedar, right? Yeah, that, that, like it's a huge misunderstanding of of well, if you're in Oklahoma. Um, and the temperatures are, are so much more mild, or you're in Alabama or Georgia, sometimes even parts of Tennessee, yeah, you're going to get a couple cold snaps, but the, the need for wintertime thermal cover isn't nearly as great as it might be in Wisconsin or Iowa or Nebraska or New York. Yeah. And, that, and, and so you can't say I need, I need this much thermal cover on, on a place or maybe – Maybe your thermal cover down south is going to be, um, as a stress period, more nece- nor- more 
necessary to have summertime thermal cover. Yeah, absolutely. And people are like, wait, 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 summertime thermal cover? What, what are you talking about? What do you mean, yeah. summertime thermal cover? Well, are you going to be, let's say, in an upland site, do you want to be out there in the middle of the sun baking like that? No. no. I wouldn't. You know, south-facing slopes have really kind of, where a lot of people talk about south-facing slopes, great bedding. Um, and they are great bedding. Sure. Especially during hunting season. When it yep. gets late season, you're like, okay, my deer want to be on south-facing slopes so they have the sun. But if you only focus on making great cover on south-facing slopes, there's a whole long what about part the other of, the six of the year right? where... They may not even need. They may not even want to be on a south facing slope. Absolutely, that, that would be the last north, place. North or east facing, a little bit cooler, and uh, you know you see that a lot where we we manage for the hunting season, but yeah. the hunting season is only a quarter of the a quarter of the year. Yeah. If we manage for, if if we could take a time out and just say, let's you know what this year instead of focusing on what I can provide for the deer during hunting season, let me think about what I can provide during the deer for the deer during the other nine months yeah. out of the year. And, and if you, if you are cons- not, I want to say concerned, but if it's one of your main goals to let's say shoot larger deer or whatever, well, antlers don't grow during the fall time, nor nope. do they grow in the winter time. However, nope. early spring and spring green up is super, super important for inches of antler yep. as that deer begins to develop. And you said early spring, but you could even go back and say that late winter. Late winter, early spring prep, is Prep their body, so keep their body as healthy as possible late late Without winter doubt. to where then when they hit early spring and they start going through growing antlers, they can focus on growing antlers rather than trying to grow some, some body weight back on. Yeah, and put get some, body mass Get back body on. mass back on, get some fat. Um, to where they're a healthier animal, and then start growing antlers. So, I, I, honestly, if, if if we could take a time and stop thinking about managing for what we can put on the farm for hunting season, and we start looking at it from the other nine months and say, this is what I need to do because I'm in Mississippi. The, the summer is my biggest stress period. Well, chances are if you can get them through that biggest stress period, you are going to have healthier deer, and therefore healthier deer will probably grow bigger antlers. Um, but you just got to get them through that stressful time and look at big picture, look at year-round management rather than that three months out of hunting season. So, so I know someone's going to say, well, guys, you didn't really explain what summertime thermal cover would be like. What, what, are, you, what are you talking about when you say that? Can you describe that? What is that going to look like? Yeah, and and you know if if you're in the north, it's not really an issue because it doesn't get that hot anyway. There, it's it's a such a small window when let's for example, um, if you're in Mississippi and you get really cold, it may only be for two weeks. Yeah, that's not going to kill the whole. You know, that's We're not going to kill that off. many deer. Yeah, no, no. Um, because just about the time where something food may become very limited, it warms back up. Yeah, Th- three uh, days later, it's going to be back in the 60s, probably. Yeah, <laughs> and the same things for true for up north with thermal cover during the summer months. It's yeah. like if it warms up to 100 degrees, it may be hot, but it's not that long of a period to really wear a deer down w- when it's back down to. 82 degrees and 60s at night yeah it's going to be fine um but but basically it's it's shaded areas areas where there's consistent shade a good flow of a breeze and there's just a higher moisture content higher humidity kind of in this little environment so for that for that one property is 320 acres mostly all upland but there was two or three uh, drainages that had a really good actual canopy um, in there, flowing water, and um, it was rather rather dense with with vegetation. And so that area at at that point, compared to the other percentage of the property that was just mostly savanna with the associated grasses and shrubs everywhere, that was like the key area where deer and I'm, we're talking deer, but we're we're talking turkeys too. Turkeys get hot. They go to the shade. They loaf half yeah. the day in the summertime in the shade. So they need these areas as well. Quail need 
um, shrub thickets to be able to block, get blocked from the sun as well during the summer time frame. So you have to be able to have that. And on this site, it was it was already there. There yeah. was very little management that needed to be done. And and it, just because there was some some more shade thrown in, in that area, um, people might say, well, I know you guys don't like closed canopy, but, but the, re- the, re- the remainder of the property was all where it should have been. So yeah. I'm going to... I'm going to respect that and say, well, that's a that's a we need factor, that. yeah, that yep. has to be in place if we want deer on the property 24-7, 365. Yep, absolutely. If not, they're going elsewhere. It's like, okay, so thermal cover in the summer in the south is almost the exact opposite of what we're looking for for thermal cover in the north during the winter. Exactly, because exactly. In the South, or even, and, and so if you're in the Midwest, you need to think about this from the standpoint of you're in the middle, you're I, in between the I South and the North, <laughs> you need some of both because you are going to have long stretches. I, I always think of June in Missouri as being miserable, but in the last couple of years, July has been the miserable July, month. Late July, early August is like, <gasps> and so what can we do? Well, North facing slopes, some East facing slopes. Leave them closed canopy. That way, there's good airflow, but we're out of. But a deer can get out of the sun. And and, and you can probably go into those areas. It's probably it, already that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably yeah. It's probably already that way. But it's probably so closed canopy that you could go and you could still drop a ton of like mid-story canopy trees and a select few of other trees and actually put some debris on the ground because it's probably wide open yep. and still you're not you're not opening it up drastically but then you have some some cover that a deer is going to bed up and against and forage with and woody forage, browse yeah. yeah there you go done yeah. deal so now you have good thermal cover with food available so you could hinge a small amount of flowering dogwoods uh, or you could just flush cut some elms and, and maple yeah. On the north slope. And so and so you have some food available as well as you've got that good thermal cover because they're out of the sun and they have a breeze. Flip that and go thermal cover in the north. You want to be you want them to have the sun. We're talking wintertime. Oh, I did I say out of the breeze? Let me backtrack just okay. to clarify. I think I said in the south, out of the sun and out of the breeze. Gotcha. But you want to be out of the sun with a breeze. Yep. And so in the north, you want to be in the sun without a breeze. You want to be protected from the wind, but still have sun to help warm you up. And that's, that's one of our biggest complaints on, on complete cedar tree thickets is because you don't have that sun. Um, you have the ability to get out of the wind and get out of the snow, but you don't have the ability to get the sun. Which is going to be the biggest form of warmth. Yeah, yeah. Like, there, there's been some properties that we've gone to um, at the right latitude where, hey, there are some evergreen species here. We're going to certainly leave um, several blocks or, let's say, chunks yeah. of that because it's 100% necessary. You're going to need Scattered. it on the landscape. Yeah. yeah. But I don't need... A thicket. I don't need. I don't need this. I don't need so three dense. acres of it. No, I I need select groups, and yeah. everything else will then be the thermal cover um, that the sun is going to be able to warm deer up during and, the winter and, time. And a, and a reason for that. Another reason why not to get away from thermal cover, but since we are talking about um, the cedar trees, um, if you can mix in native grasses with forbs. With the scattered cedars or a few little clusters of cedars, as well as plums mixed in with that. So now you have the ability for the sun to shine in to warm them, to melt the snow quicker. Yep. Um, you have the grasses and the evergreens to help protect them from the wind. So they're out of the wind, but they still have sun. And then you mix in shrubs to provide woody oh. brows. As well as forbs, which are great browse during the summer months if, if they're just in that area. If you're in a flat landscape where there's not so much north and south facing slope um, deciding factors there. So you have year-round food as well as year-round cover there. Um, but most importantly, you're getting great food with your woody browse from the shrubs as well as the benefits of the cedar trees or the, the evergreens to protect them from the wind and keep the snow levels down. You know what's really funny? 
what are we describing right now? So we've got drainages that are kind of more closed canopy. We've got native uh, landscapes is what it, we're describing. Exactly. Yeah. That is the whole point. Go go in <laughs> and research what the United States of America used to look like, East Coast all the way through till. Uh, I mean, there's there's oak savannas in California, the, all go, the way through. Just go the read er, early explor- explorations, um, early explorers journals. Just stuff read like their that. journals because what you will hear in in a very summed up kind of way. You will hear large amounts of game, large amounts of plant communities, um, diversity, and... Not a lot of trees. <laughs> yeah. When you do hear trees, there's a mix of brambles and cane brakes and yep. uh, all kinds of different food uh, diversity within within those areas. So you don't hear... You won't hear vast amounts of one species. No, um, not at all. You'll hear vast amounts of grasses and flowers... Vast amounts of shrubs. Uh, even Lewis and Clark document a lot about the different shrubs, the plums, uh, as they were going up the Missouri River, um, black halls mm-hmm. and all kinds choke of different cherry too, choke right cherries and, yep. and things that really we don't talk about a lot uh, um, with wildlife management, which is kind of shocking. Um, shocking and shameful. Um, but, yes, it, you won't hear them talk a lot about uh, miscanthus, being great <laughs> no no uh, i had to throw that in there won't hear you know the the, the bush honeysuckle yeah That's or just, autumn olive being yeah, great you won't hear yeah. any of that in those journals uh you'll hear lots of fire use uh, yep. but just the over amount of uh the overabundance of wildlife um just just tons and tons of wildlife from big animals all the way down to small because animals. going back to the very beginning of the podcast you're, you're not looking at a cook, cookie-cutter situation. You're looking at your property individually and what the landscape should be, the way God intended that landscape to be managed. We're just restoring it back to that, and that's why we like diversity and diverse properties because it should have all these components there, and if it does, well, my gosh, you're so set. You're golden. Yeah. You're golden, and you're golden for tons of different uh, varieties of songbirds and insects and just general wildlife species. Yes. So it's just, uh, once again, uh, not to reiterate constantly on this podcast. But but reiterate. But it feels like we should keep doing it so everybody continues to hear this message and can look at the landscape and, and wildlife management and most specifically white-tailed deer management. Yeah. Um, because it should not be what's in this bag, what's in that bag, what's this person selling. Okay, that's what I need to use because we should look at it from a holistic mindset and say, if I really want big deer, okay, I only care about big deer. Well, we can get that by still managing. Don't confuse the, don't confuse the listeners out of yeah. <laughs> If I only care about big deer, yeah. um, go back and listen to the rant last week. But if I only care about big deer... You should still, you can still get there, and probably much faster, by just looking at the historical site and try to restore your native landscape. Yeah, you know, you know, one question we, we've uh, we've gotten quite a bit. Um, I do have some questions to cover as well. So gotcha. Good, good one, segue. One question that we've gotten is like, hey, have you guys ever done um, like like consulting and stuff like that for elk? And it's kind of funny because. Um, you know, you look at the the distribution of elk historically across North America, and now you look at the ranges and kind of where they're confined to and pushed to. Um, you you totally see that. Holy cow! That that same exact landscape that we just sat here and described of of the grass components, the the diverse plant communities, the shrub communities, the thermal covers, um, the mass producing trees and drainages, all this stuff, fire. Well, gosh, that was so good for elk way uh-huh. back when. And, and now we, we honestly have them pushed up into mountain ranges. We're sure there's components of that, but, but it's not distributed across the whole landscape. And, and it's like, what, what, what do the elk need? Well, oh, they're going to do just fine on a landscape that we just described. Yeah. Because historically, that's what there was, and that's where they were. Yeah. So they need the, they need very same, similar. Same thing with grizzly bears too. Same thing with grizzlies. They were they were a plains animal. Yeah. Uh, it's nuts. Yeah. If you want to, I mean, 
trying to maximize your farm, you like said, you can't go wrong with adding more diversity to it. Um, whether that be your farm is a forest, you're in the northern part of Wisconsin, well, and, and you're a forest. Well, add some diversity to your forest, not only with species, but as well with different age structures of your forest. That's a very good point. Age structure, so that means just taking that, that tree, cutting it, and now it's a very young tree. Yeah, now you have a, a, tree, a young tree that's providing better cover than the tall tree, mature tree, um, but also providing food as well. Without a doubt. And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of the difference where I think a lot of times we get kind of, we, we look at, you know, we're, we're young guys from Missouri. Well, what do we have, what are we going to do and how are you, we're going to prescribe bedding thickets and whatever in northern Michigan. Well, a big part about our consulting, that's why we kind of laugh to say there are, we're not cookie-cutter consulting because we may go to northern Michigan and our sole focus is trying to decrease stress levels, decrease the stress in deer during the most stressful time, late winter, early spring. How do we do that? Well, we know woody browse is extremely crucial in that landscape. So we may be focused solely on trying to manage that farm for more woody browse through young forest, through shrub plantings, whatever it may be. At the same time, our food plot varieties are probably going to have a, a, a different structure to them in the northern part of the country versus the southern part of the country. Absolutely. Because... We're trying to make sure we got plenty of food available that's above snow level. And so if we go in and we plant just brassicas, well, they're going to eat that during hunting season. But then as soon as hunting season is over and snow starts falling, or even when snow starts falling hunting season still open, they may have already consumed all the brassicas. And then that, that has no good to us or no good to the wildlife during one of the biggest stressful times of the year. So if, if you're really trying to say, hey, you know what? I no longer care about my hunting success. What can I do for the wildlife? Well, probably try to add a food source that's going to be available above snow and more year-round. And uh, so our food plot varieties change when we go to the north. They change when we go to the south. And then in the middle, it's like we have, if you want to simplify this, the northern part of the world is kind of a color, a dark shade of color, and the south is kind of a white. And then in the middle, we swirl it all together like to a, make gray. It's a Venn diagram, basically. And so, blending. Yeah, and that's kind of how we're managing. And that goes from food plot varieties all the way to the principle, the base of our native vegetation that we're trying to promote. Down south, more herbaceous cover or herbaceous plants. Up north, more woody woody plants yeah and when we say let's say more we're just talking about more in relation to the south we're not necessarily talking okay well you have to have 60 percent woody uh cover and then 40 percent herbaceous on the landscape in the north every property is 100 percent different yeah. but it, it it just tends to be you tend to lean on the woody uh tender that's a stress period up north so we're gonna we're gonna we have to provide that it's not we want to we we have to and, and so that's what's going to actually accomplish the goals of the landowner and create the d diversity. Diversity isn't just species, but age of species. Um, that's is that's, a, that's just a crucial, critical component to understanding. Hey, there's there's really no magic bullet. No, I think I think I think we just have to sometimes slow down, stop reading, yeah, and and literally think about what it is that we have to do and, and I want to say a common sense because not everyone you know studies this stuff as in depthly however mm -hmm. but but just look at your area critically and think well if I were to do this would this actually help would it be beneficial do I think that I need to be planting X in my region you can work yourself work your way through it just don't Continue. Tr don't, don't think that, okay, let me say continuing to um, increase the amount of stuff that I'm reading that I'm going to find my answer. Yeah. You've probably read enough. You just need to begin to slow down and think about it. Think about your, your property, what it has and what it does not have, and then what your region 
should have and then create that. Yeah. And a lot of times it can just be done mechanically. Uh, yeah, I, I want to use kind of a another analogy or another little example for southern management and, and why you need to think about your your stressful times and then what you can provide um, that's going to be most beneficial and most utilized is um, soybeans are a tremendous attractant to white-tailed deer. Everybody knows that. Um, there's a reason why we all look googly-eyed at Iowa and Illinois and all these places for when the fall rolls around for giant deer and it's and it's because you know a crop country there's lots of soybeans they eat the leaves during the summer months they eat the pods during the winter okay we get that but if you uh, if your goal is to um, have an attractive food source during hunting season and you're down south we don't typically lean on soybeans as our food plot variety because soybean pods are mostly consumed in it's cold weather, and and it's being uh, <laughs> being what they are, the a deer eats them to warm up internally. Um, and so, in northern part of the world, northern states, I always think of Iowa when I think of giant deer. I think a lot of people do. You think of standing Why soybeans. Why would you do that? <laughs> standing soybeans, going, oh man, that's wonderful. Yeah. But down south, you may if you plant soybeans from the from the mindset going, boy, this is going to be awesome. You may sit there and just hear crickets. Oh uh, yeah, because it has to get cold for them to really find it attractive. But if you plant a food source like a mix of clover, chicory, or alfalfa and iron and, clay peas and different, yeah, peas. you're going to have a tremendous attraction during the summer months, but as well as something green that's sure. really, really attractive during the fall before you get that two week period that might be cold. It was a it was a relatively mild winter uh, in Oklahoma. Yeah, and um, I saw some clover fields this weekend. Yeah, that were I mean bright neon green. They were they looked like it was just right after a fresh mow that first let's say mowing um, in May June time frame. Absolutely. It was that yeah. green, beautiful. But that up here in in, in uh, Iowa? Iowa, it's under six inches of snow. Yeah, and it's going to be yellowed Soybeans out. Soybeans would be, or yeah. even Milo would be a great yeah, food source. Absolutely. But but if you planted those soybeans, if there were standing soybeans, were there any standing soybeans anywhere you went? No. Yeah. No. Me either. Um, and, you know, those could be, <laughs> they could be consumed, but there's a good chance if you play it and you say in five, out of a five-year period, how many falls has it gotten cold enough that standing soybeans have been attractive? Down south, maybe one out of five years. And it may be a very small window. And I'm not willing to hitch my wagon to that very small window That's and say. That's a lot of time and a lot of expense. Yeah. If I, if I, so we use soybeans a lot in trying to control invasives, trying to control unwanted plants in our, in our food plot areas. But if, if you're in the south or even parts of the Midwest and you're trying to manage, maximize your food plot acres, diversity is king. And look at that, look at that window of time and say, what can I grow here that's going to be more beneficial during the during the longest period of time? Yeah, from from germination to termination, what can I get the most bang out of the buck for? Yeah, that's what I want. So, yeah, and a couple of questions we had this yeah. week. Uh, one guy asked, he wrote in on, and he asked basically the question of um, field management and and uh, mentioned honey honey locusts mm-hmm. and burning them and prescribed fire. Do we ever recommend leaving mature honey locust trees um, to stand as deer love to eat the pods? I'm working to improve his farm, um, and he's got some young honey locust trees on it and debating on whether he should leave them so there's another food source available, um, or should he uh, le- uh, remove them and try to think about some other, some other tree? Um, you know, when, so when you, he said he had a neighbor that had a honey locust tree yeah. that they always came up into the yard. Uh, let's see here. That Did they always came up into the yard. In? Uh, no, he's doesn't say, but gotcha. he hunts. Uh, he's hunting grouse, and so I assumed he okay. was in the northern part of the world. Yeah. Um, which so that's basically um, for me. Okay, 
Do deer eat honey locust pods? Yes, you do see deer eat honey locust pods. When do they eat honey locust pods? Generally when food supply is very limited. Yeah. Uh, not yeah. to say there's that you're not going to see a deer during the fall, even with acorns on the ground, to eat a honey locust pod. We're playing it by the numbers. You don't see vast amounts of deer herds across the country going seeking out honey locust pods. Um, There's exceptions. When you see However, deer speaking, going into a yard to eat, I would assume that most of the time that's when where they feel most comfortable, back in the woods, away from that guy's house, they are more, uh, they've consumed the most of the food there, so they're going out to this guy's place to eat honey locust pods. That's what I typically see. Um, now, in your old fields, should you leave your honey locust because, um, because they're going to one day provide a food source? This is how I explained it to him. I don't want them in, in my fields for the simple fact of there's... When you say them, you're talking honey, honey locust. Honey locust pods. Yep. Or honey locusts. Yeah. Because I would like to see something that's more beneficial providing two different types of forage as well as better cover as well as it's not going to be an aggressive part of the landscape. Honey locusts are more aggressive than some of our other species, and they only provide a food source in the form of pods that is not real attractive when anyway. When they get to a, cer when they oh, get to to a, a certain, certain age. age. Yeah. Exactly. I would rather remove those and have a native shrub that provides not only a soft mass, let's say American plum, yep. um, as well as, or gray dogwood, Yep. Um, or some of our other shrubby dogwoods, and then also provide woody brows. You don't see a lot of woody brows on honey locusts, um, or don't see a lot of brows on honey well, locusts. Well, especially not the, not the stage when they're producing a pod. They're mm. way out of reach. Yeah. They'll browse it when it's super young. So and not even that much. Not that much. But if a little bit comes in, burn it. You're burning it. Burn it now. And then if it's, um, and then, uh, Wow. We're driving in road construction. I don't yeah. know if you saw that, but or it's they they probably salt. heard that. Got a little salt yeah. right in front of me on the windshield, but um, and that's why I, I want to remove those. I don't want them to get out of hand. And also, let's talk about it from an investment standpoint. Is that field going to be more um, a higher return, basically a more productive field, attractive use, more attractive, more resale value if it's and more of a grassland? Where a farmer, a crop farmer could look at it, I would hate to see it make me cringe, but he'd go, well, that wouldn't take me very long, and I could have that in really productive crops. Mm -hmm. Or that's going to be great grazing. But if it's infested with honey locusts, it's not going to get Everyone great. says, gosh, I've got, a, I've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't matter who they are. We've been on many, because they're a bit of a problem here in the Midwest, and especially where we're doing a lot of our real estate, and it's, it's not a great field that you want to take a client or potential buyer to and say, yeah, look at this. Nor do I want to drive my truck across it. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter if they're a cattle farmer, crop farmer, recreational user, or just somebody who wants to live in the country. I haven't found one that says, oh, I love those honey locusts all over that field. Yeah. Most of the time they're like, ugh, there's a lot of thorn trees. Two two flat tires and you're it's old. It's yeah, getting old it's, real quick. I'm sick of it. So. Yeah. You know, from our standpoint, keep continuing burning if it's coming more of a problem. Cut them, treat those stumps, and get something that's more beneficial that provides more year-round benefit. Absolutely. And at the same time, you can take think about it from a standpoint of, um, like Kyle and Frank talk a lot about raptor perches. If you plant shrubs, it's not it's not a raptor perch or. It, if they are perched in it, they're not doing nearly as good as they could be or in a 30-foot-tall honey locust perched high and seeing out across the field. Um, so y you could have something that's more beneficial to wildlife, but it's not that's not as beneficial to some of our raptors or uh, animals that may be Rubber not tires. as uh, looked upon as a great benefit. So, um, yeah, that, that so that was... We've been asked that question a lot about honey locust pods, so it's a good chance to address it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any other questions came in oh, this week? Oh, we had a lot of questions this week, and I have to dig it up. But you were going to talk about something a second ago. I'm not sure if you remember what it was. but Probably not. Um, 
you know, it's it's just the difference in, in managing in the north and managing in the south, managing in the Midwest. The principle's the same. We're trying to replicate nature, restore horse to, uh, historical landscapes, add as much diversity as possible. Yeah. Now, that may come in many different forms, but that's the base of all our, of our management and all of our consulting. Um, it's not going to be, you know, we go to the north, try to make food plots. We go to the south, try to make more food plots because there's so much more to uh, land management than that. And uh, so it was, it's, it's important that we look at it from a big picture because that's going to be your best way of maximizing your farm. Um, oh man, we had, we had so many questions, but, um, one guy asked, uh, they got permission to plant a food plot. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a younger, younger group of guys that got permission to plant this food plot, um, that right now is a thick, thick stand of Johnson grass. And he asked, what's the best option? Yep. Um, and, and so, you know, when you're dealing with Johnson grass, it, could be a, a, a longer period could be a of multi-year time. multi-year process. And so it's going to take herbicide. Mowing's not really going to be great. So this is a chance where disking's a horrible option because you're only going to st- mm-hmm. create more, more Johnson grass. So really, if, you, if we're trying to control it, herbicide's our best option. We want to provide a food plot that's going to actually provide some benefit so Roundup Ready Soybeans during the growing season is is going to be an awesome, awesome thing to do. Um, and you could even, doesn't sound, no-till drills, not, not in their mix. So they're going to be doing a broadcast, a heavy, heavy dose of soybeans. What about a Roundup Ready Alfalfa? They could do Roundup Ready Alfalfa. Obviously, it's way more expensive than Roundup Ready Soybeans. So yep. with these guys, younger guys... I'm assuming like a lot of young guys are not going to go buy a 250 pound or $250 bag of Roundup Ready right. alfalfa. So they went with, they're hopefully going with soybeans, control that Johnson grass, then plant a high diverse mix in the fall to try to smother a little, smother bit. A little bit of that Johnson grass and then turn around and go soybeans again the next year. And that's the case with a lot of. We, we promote diversity so much. It's also good to, to talk about um, when we use monocultures of, it's a tool. It's, of it's soybeans, and that's specifically the tool to try to control some of our problematic species like Cerisa lespediza or even it could be Bermuda grass or it mm-hmm. could be Johnson grass. And uh, we're just trying to control those, get those removed from the area, and then we'll go back to diversity. Absolutely, um, and that's it's just an ongoing fight that we that we face with non-natives. And but we have to be creative. We have to be willing to look outside the box, um, and and bend the strategy a little bit because we know that the long-term gain, getting that invasive non-native out of there, out of that system, out of that seed bank, is way more beneficial. So sometimes we got to go heavy monoculture for a year or two, and then. Yeah, moving with on. herbicides. Yeah, yep. exactly. Another question Guy asked about, uh, said on our website, we didn't have anything mentioning um, broadcasting heritage blend. Mm-hmm. Um, and this goes with almost br- with broadcasting anything. You typically go more pounds per acre when you're broadcasting seed versus drilling it. Yeah. And so 41 pounds, I think, is 41 pounds of heritage blend per acre. So That's our drilling br- rate. Right on drilling, yes. Yep. And so, if you are looking to broadcast, you probably want to bump that up to sixty to eighty pounds per acre, um, just so you can, you know, account You're for birds or always, runoff or yep. lack of germination because it didn't have good seed to soil contact. Yeah, and there is a diversity of seeds in there. That's awesome. Why? Why? Another reason why we are such fans of diversity because. Not every time you you broadcast the the soil is going to be level. It's going to make perfect seed soil contact. You got different size seeds, different shapes. Uh, you look at a buckwheat seed versus a millet seed, and you're like, wow, what in the world am I looking at? Yeah, like, this be, these are both seeds, but absolutely they are, and then they're going to do different things and respond differently to broadcasting. Um, and one's probably going to be easier for other birds to see. So you could have a ton that's uh, that's been buckwheat that's been uh, picked off, but you know, 
regardless, you have other seeds in there with the diversity that's going to make better seed to soil contact and have a great stand. Yeah. Um, no, one question that ties in great with, with this whole podcast. Um, yeah, a guy asked about, um, he's in Tennessee. He has this okay. track of ground, and uh, they've never killed a nice mature buck. They've seen a few on camera with a, and then some with spotting scope, um, but they're there a time or two. After last season, they decided they needed to change. And after they discovered our podcast, um, they were hooked. And they're never going to hunt the way <laughs> that they have for years <laughs> yeah. after what they found on the podcast. Um, they've got a logger. But they're making plans to do low-impact stand sites um, and doing some logging. But he has steep slopes that were clear-cut about 10 years ago. Okay. And it, within these steep slopes, um, there are tons of inch or two saplings. And you said inch or two? Yeah, in okay. diameter. Yep. So, you know, they're nice. 10 foot tall and they're an inch or two in diameter. So... Um, Lots of them. He sent a picture. I'll show it to you. Okay. Um, but he's just trying to figure out what's the best application um, to improve habitat in a site like this. Um, they have long ridge tops uh, that have food plots on them, but it's surrounded by these areas. Um, soil is horrible. So what would we recommend for planting in uh, silt, gravel, Gravelly silt loam soils with pH at five and a half um, or five point five, and so basically it was a loaded question with lots of different stuff. But his place looks like that. Oh, nice! When he's talking, did, so did he say what state? So we can kind of Tennessee. I Ten, said that okay, the Tennessee. Yeah. So tulip, Mid poplar, oak, hickory, stuff, maples, probably. stuff Maple. like that. And it's that perfect combination where you've got some mountains in Tennessee, yep. so you yep. can get some cold spells. So winter stress period is a legit, mm -hmm. but you can also get those hot summer. Yeah. So you're in that transition area to where you've got stress periods. You're not going to have the extreme stress of late winter, but you're not, and you shouldn't have the extreme stress continued long spans of summer. Yep. So you need to have a little bit of everything. And, uh, you know, when you look at one to two inch diameter saplings post clear cut, 10 years from a clear cut, or 10 years removed from clear cut, you go, okay, what can we do with this? And it's so steep that you may not be able to bring in a grinder head on a skid steer and knock them out. And this is where one of the few times where we would recommend a lot of hack and squirt. Mm -hmm. um, if you have high stem density, you're high stem density where you're not creating a bunch of snags that are going to be very problematic during what, fire. Yeah, what would be in the center of a fire unit, yeah. not on the fringes, not on the edges. Yes, and so he's recommended going in. You want to create these hot spots. Don't get overwhelmed going, i got to do this whole side slope. Create hot spots in conjunction with your food plot to where if, you're, if you've got long, skinny food plots, Maybe not plant the whole, um, the whole long food plot to where you set at one end because that's the best access, and 200 yards down they're out there on that end. Maybe leave it, plant smaller food plots, and uh, plant smaller food plots that you can hunt more effectively. Your access is better. Pull back and and go 100 yards in from those food plots off the main slopes. Go in, try to thin out a whole acre hack and squirt to where you get more herbaceous cover herbaceous plants um, maybe pick some trees that might be bigger hinge cut a few here and there um, that way you have a a, a tree that yep. is providing great cover that's not going to be con completely consumed and prescribed fire and uh, so create the hot spots with a hatchet and bottle herbicide and then also try to burn it it's in that time frame where if you catch it right, you may be able to knock back a lot yeah. of those saplings with a fire. That's kind of what I was seeing. Is like, man, you might be able to knock those back, knock them back, and then from there say, "Wow, I, I knocked out forty percent of these just with the prescribed fire." Then, then my job with a uh, bottle of herbicide or chainsaw is minimized. Yeah, uh, absolutely by forty percent. And if it's that steep, you know, back it off. 40 yards from up top, but then try to rip a head fire up through there and knock you, them back. If you're comfortable with it, yeah, 
That that would be the definitely the prescription because there's nothing that you really want to save in there. No, if it's let's, clear cut, let's yeah. let her do its job. Yeah, that, that I think that you mentioned, but the like the aspect of that slope, you know, how is it facing north, west? It's you know everything. all that stuff, yeah. right? So you could go and have different areas, different prescriptions based on on the aspect and what the sun's going to do in those those specific areas. So yeah, cool. And, and a, another thing to mention, if tulip poplar. Um, is one of those species that grows really, really fast, really, really straight. And it's one of those that, if you're not careful, it can grow without a reach and not be nearly as beneficial as some other of your, some other tree species. Four four years after, if you got tulip poplar, it's scary how fast they jump. It's insane. Multi-stem, usually it's four or five stems off off a stump, you know, something like that. They just jump, and there's very little food value. Yeah. And and structure. um, That's a, a great time to... Or that's a great species to treat with herbicide to uh, um, to really knock it back and, and get something more beneficial in there. Yeah. Oh, um, we're trying to decide here as we wrap this podcast up. Where it's Slim Chickens or Chick-fil-A. And Chick-fil-A is usually the go-to choice. So, Absolutely. Um, anyway, guys, hopefully you enjoyed this week. Did you say sign up for I, yeah. Whitetail Weekend we is, need, is yeah, now we out there? Yeah, we need to definitely do that. So Whitetail Weekend, QDMA, going to be a great experience down in Athens, Georgia. March, March 12th through the 15th, I think? Something like 13th that. 13th through the 15th, I believe. 13th through the 15th, or it, opening night is the 12th. I can't yep. remember, but it's an awesome event. It's one of our favorite times to get together with the guys from QDMA. Lots of education, lots of laughs, lots of hunting strategy involved. Um, seminars, all kinds of great things. We're going to be doing a couple speaking engagements as well with other uh, other folks. So um, go there, sign up. Registration is definitely open for that weekend. We'd if you're looking for you. a great family vacation, yeah. time to get away in February, head to the Nashville, Tennessee, Gaylord Opryland Hotel and Resort. We're going to be there for the National Wild Turkey Federation National Convention. And uh, it's a fun time. It's one of our favorite shows as well. Um, and that's in mid-February. So yeah, check it out. 14th, I believe. And then um, I think that's it for now. Guys, once again, thanks again. Head over to our YouTube page. Please subscribe. Um, head to uh, our Facebook page. Interact. And we also have a Facebook group, Land and Wildlife Conservation Community. And... Uh, We've got a lot of uh, great interaction on there, a lot of guys doing habitat questions and showing their progress on their farm. So once again, guys, thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next week. Yep. See ya.